I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Hey, this is associate producer Drew Marr. Before we get started, we wanted to remind you that No End in Sight has a newsletter. It's full of updates about Twitter conversations happening in our hashtag NEIS void, book and article recommendations about chronic illness and disability, and links to new podcast episodes and miscellaneous other media. If you are comfortably able to support our work, there are paid options available, but all core content will be free. You can take a look at our previous newsletters and subscribe over at noendinsight.substack.com. Today we'll be talking with Crew Dog from One Sick Vet about connective tissue, mast cell activation syndrome, and veteran disability services. A few content notes for this episode. There is talk of the military throughout this episode, including a mention of the Gulf War, Desert Storm, as well as 9-11 and the ensuing wars around 30 minutes in. And Crew Dog and Brianne refer to the pandemic a few times throughout the episode, but they do not talk about COVID or lockdown very extensively in this episode. Before we start, here's our disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. So... I like to start just by asking people, how is your health as a kid? Which is an interesting question because like you, it's a lot of retrospective work Mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. And I would have always said that my health was excellent. Yeah. And I think that's still a fairly accurate observation. But what I've come to recognize is that my primary parent is sort of in denial about health issues. Mm -hmm. And so they always told us that everyone in our family had excellent health. Sure, (laughs) and that's how you knew, right? Right. So I really don't have the same history of that some chronically ill and disabled people do of not being able to do sports or having pain that prohibited me from doing things. I was a very active child, Mm -hmm. but I now believe that I have a connective tissue issue and that I can look back now on incidences where I got hurt and I was in pain and adults told me, you don't have any broken bones, so you're fine. Right, right. So there's no pain cause. That's the only way pain happens. Exactly. If it's not a broken bone, you have no pain, go away. Yeah. Shake it off. Mm -hmm. But I can look at a significant incident when I was in about eighth grade. And at the time, at school, in PE, playing basketball, I received a very severe sprain to an ankle. Mm-hmm. And of course, we also didn't have health care when I was a child. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of things that we didn't pursue care for. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until three, four years ago when I was working for with a physical therapist for a different injury 
that I, you know, she sort of explained to me that there's three ligaments that go across your ankle, and I'm now convinced that I ruptured one of them. Yeah. It was a sprain, but I think that I completely ruptured one of those ligaments. But we didn't have health care, so I got an ace bandage and crutches for a couple weeks. Yeah, maybe nice. Uh, And I spent a whole summer running and sort of trying to train my foot to go back into the correct position Mm -hmm. because it wanted to cheat outward. Mm -hmm. So the guardrails were off. Yeah. So I was very fortunate that I was able to be very active Mm -hmm. and do everything that I wanted to do physically as a child. But I do think that I was accumulating connective tissue damage all the way along, and it was never recognized or treated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. can see how that would happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, scared eyes. Yeah, and that is, of course, very relatable to kind of look back and go, oh, those might have been significant injuries, but I wasn't thinking about them that way at the time. Even if I was injured for weeks at a time or a month at a time, I feel like there's a piece of it that's like, yeah, when you're a kid and if the people around you think it's not a problem, then you're like, okay, I guess it's normal to do this or whatever it is. Especially if your condition is genetic (laughs) and the people around you also had similar experiences. Yeah. Woof. Okay, so that was growing up, you're blissfully unaware of what might be potential damage to your connective tissue over time. Is there a time when, even in retrospect, because I know it can be hard to see these patterns, when that started to change or when you started to notice either more or additional or more severe kind of symptoms or did things happen? How did things happen? Specifically about connective tissue, it's just been the past few years where it seems like it has just really accelerated and really become a limitation. Mm -hmm. But in between the blissful childhood ignorance and Mm -hmm. the, you know, pieces are falling off of me faster than I can glue them back on of my current existence. Yeah, the wheels are literally falling off of the bus now. Yes. I developed migraines Okay. right around the time that I was turning 30. Okay. And so, obviously, I was in the military. I had a very active, physically demanding career. Separated from the military, still thinking that I was fit and healthy. And then the migraines started. Okay. And the first few years, it was maybe one to three headaches a year. And I didn't recognize them as migraines. And were they very long? No, it would be like one evening I would have the worst headache I've ever had in my life. And I really never had headaches prior to that. Mm -hmm. And I was married Mm -hmm. at that time. Still am, but I'm saying it happened after I was married. Yeah. And so the two of us, neither of us knew what it was right i would imagine especially at the beginning it would seem like an acute fluke like oh right. last night was weird but it's gone now and then the, the second time you might kind of be like oh i think this happened before but it was so long ago and then the third time and you were like oh no <laughs> is this a pattern well and they were so infrequent in the beginning mm-hmm. that i was like 
I don't know why I'm getting these headaches, but it wasn't even to where I was seeing a pattern yet. Yeah. And so I would say that my recognition of I'm not just a fit, healthy, stereotypical, abled person was when I had acute sudden onset vertigo. Ugh. Yeah. It's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> so I was literally sitting in the same chair that I'm sitting in right now. Yeah. And studying. I was doing a master's degree and reading a book and it felt like my brain did a cartwheel. Mm. And I just had this violent attack of vertigo. Yeah. But no headache. I just had what I now recognize as I just had the aura. Yeah. And no headache. The vertigo was severe and persistent. And so that's when I went to a doctor because, yay, we had military health care, <laughs> which is better than no health care. Right. Yay. Access. <laughs> so that's when I went to the doctor and was like, this is really weird. And what is it? And to their credit, they did a full barrage of tests, seeing all the specialists, neuro, ENT, getting MRIs. And so at the end of the day, they were like, well, we've ruled out the weird tumor that you can get in your ear. And we've ruled out this and that. And you don't have a brain tumor and everything else. And a lot of times migraine is a diagnosis of exclusion. So they were like, well, we're diagnosing you with what they called at the time, basilar type migraines and migraine associated vertigo. Okay. And that was kind of it. No treatment was ever offered for the vertigo. Yeah. And we started trying migraine meds. Okay. And that began the whole process of decades of trial and error and failure. So in my still early 30s was when, okay, now I have migraines and I have vertigo. And I started learning about possible triggers for migraine in the environment and in my diet. And mm -hmm. that's when all the yay, let's mess around with things in your diet thing starts, right? Yeah. Great news. You're about to mess with your diet all the time and never stop thinking about it. For the rest of your life. Yeah, because it might make <laughs> your health a little bit better or not, but it's your only option. Right. Yeah. Right. It's one of the only things you can control. Yeah. Yeah. And so... were you still in school at that time? Yes. Okay. Yes. In fact, I took my comprehensive exams for that degree remotely on my computer and they released the questions to me and gave me several days or whatever and I had a very severe attack of vertigo while I was sitting at the computer trying to write one of my answers and so spousal unit came home from work and literally found me lying on the floor with my hands out as if to like, we didn't have carpet, so I couldn't dig my fingers in, but I was just lying there clutching the floor and chanting over and over to myself, you can't fall off the floor. Yeah. You can't fall off the floor oh, because the vertigo was so bad. It felt like I was just going to go spinning off into outer space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
You have a new awareness of the Earth's orbital rotation. And rationally, I could tell myself that this was not going to happen, but my body was not buying it. You yeah, know? that is a, it's one of those situations where it does not help, actually, <laughs> to talk yourself down. So, yes, other than the exams, I don't remember. And again, this was almost 20 years ago, but I don't remember the migraines really affecting my schoolwork very much at that time. Mm -hmm. But I obviously remember that experience of trying to take my comprehensive exams and just being so incapacitated that I just had to lay on the floor until I got some sense of stability again. Yeah, yeah. Ugh, yeah, vertigo is awful. Yeah. And I imagine, too, this is one of those things about looking back in retrospect, is those moments, as, as they start to click into a pattern, sometimes new moments appear that you'd never really thought about before. And you're like, oh, no, this is a much stronger pattern than I realized. But you don't see them if you're not looking. Then you start to look. Ugh. Right. Right. Yeah. So this new sort of chapter of my life, now I'm dealing with migraines and vertigo. But one of my closest friends had had migraines for a decade longer. And so they were sort of my role model, yeah. you know, and I, I would go to them and be like, okay. And they were like, well, I don't know, but maybe try this. <laughs> but their attitude was just suck it up and drive on. Mm -hmm. So I, it, even though I now had migraines and you know, I had to be a little careful about what I ate and had to make sure that I wasn't around too much cigarette smoke or perfume or it wasn't too hot in the vehicle while we were traveling or whatever. I think that I still had a lot of internalized ableism and I did not at that point. My identity didn't shift. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, well, okay, I'm still me. I've got a few limitations, but that's my problem, not anybody else's problem. And I'm just going to try to do everything I did before without inconveniencing anybody else. Yeah. I, <laughs> I just had this like vision of what they say about, I think, ducks or waterfowl, how it's like on top, they look completely calm as they're floating on the water and underneath they're paddling as fast as they can. And as right. we were describing it, I was like, oh, that's so many of us who it's like, okay, well, my job stayed intact, but I started to get rid of my hobbies. And then I started to get rid of my social life. And all of that time was taken up by self-care. So it's like underneath the water, I'm paying attention to my environment and my diet and my sleep cycle. And I'm constantly scanning my body. But above the water, I'm like pretending to be, an, not even pretending, yearning to be an abled member of society or something passing as yes yeah so yeah still passing as and i think like because i relate so much to that too it's hard when everyone if no one not no one tells you that's not the right way to say it but like when everyone around you is pushing through and acting like it's no big deal even when you have like maybe an accumulation that is more than these people who are like, oh, yeah, I have migraines, but actually it's fine. You're still like, okay, well, maybe migraines are fine. That's not a disability. That's not disabling. And you pull all these things in. And then you're like, yeah, maybe this is hard, hopefully, <laughs> or something. It's amazing, I think, how long we can kind of be like, no, this is fine. <laughs> right, right. That's so true. And there was a thread on Twitter this past week where... 
people were sort of talking about a similar topic and one of the responses that just really resonated with me was I didn't see myself as chronically ill or disabled until it started to affect my energy levels and my cognitive ability. Mm-hmm. And then for that person, and I can't remember to attribute who that was, but mm-hmm. for that person and for me, those were sort of the breaking points where you can't deny it any longer. Yeah. And you can't fake it any longer, even if you aren't consciously aware of faking it or aware of consciously choosing to fake it. You're like, oh, can't even show up and pretend right it starts becoming obvious to others yeah which is its own thing so where was that point for you or is that around where we are because you're kind of saying like things are getting harder and harder but you're not thinking of it you're not identifying as disabled you're still kind of trying to brute force your way through yeah right when the vertigo happened and i finally got a diagnosis of migraine Mm -hmm. i had separated from the military and spousal unit was working still in the military because we were a dual military couple and I was as I said going to grad school and thinking that okay I'm going to apply this degree and I'm going to get a job Mm -hmm. when I finish but I wasn't having to work at that time Mm -hmm. and of course we moved every two to three years so it's This isn't the subject of this podcast, but it's difficult for spouses to have a career of any kind Mm -hmm. with that much moving around. Yeah. And I could go on to that, but it's really not the topic. Just to say that I wasn't trying to also work at the same time when all this was happening. Yeah. For unrelated, but obviously relevant reasons. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, well, I'll just... I'll expand just a little bit more. Spousal unit and I, when I decided to separate from the military, sat down, had a long talk about it, decided to preference their career at that point because we really wanted a military pension. Mm -hmm. And so the agreement was spousal unit was about halfway through the required commitment to To earn, earn the pension. Mm-hmm. Because you have to serve for at least 20 years okay. to get a pension. or If you separate before that, there's nothing. Okay. You know? Yeah. Now it's a little bit different. There is like a 401k equivalent mm. that you can take with you. But when back then there wasn't. Gotcha. And so we agreed that their career would be preferenced. But then once that was secured, then the plan was that I would go back to work and have a second career mm-hmm. so we were going to kind of do them sequentially yeah you know yeah <laughs> instead yeah. of consecutively yeah so the problem was that after spousal unit had secured the pension and it was my turn i went to get a phd and so now I'm still not working, but I'm in grad school and I'm still having migraines and 
sometimes having to go to my office in between classes and take a migraine nap on the floor under my desk kind of thing. Yeah. But still don't see myself as chronically ill or disabled in any way. It's fine. Nobody can see it. Everything's fine. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to classes wearing a ball cap and sometimes sunglasses. Professors think I'm this weirdo in the corner, but everything's okay. Nothing to see here. Yeah. No, it's just very bright, and I don't understand why no one else needs a hat and sunglasses. So it was during this time where spousal unit was transitioning out of the military and, you know, me completing a PhD and starting my second career was becoming the priority that my health got significantly worse. Mm -hmm. And... It's kind of hard to peel the onion. Yeah. During my PhD, we lost several of our parents. Mm. There was just like so many, so many things going on. But the the germane that happened to this conversation were, I had a slip and fall injury on a vacation. Yeah. So, spousal unit and I were on like a one week vacation. I slipped and I fell on a wet tile floor and tore and ruptured connective tissue from my hand all the way through my scapula. Ah, okay. (laughs) It's a lot. So at this point I've done all my coursework. I'm doing an externship and I now have ruptured everything and I wrote about that a lot on my blog because it was an ordeal. We didn't have good military providers where we were at that point, Mm -hmm. where we were living. And so it took me, the doctor said the same thing I'd heard my whole life. You don't have any broken bones. You're fine. Don't worry about it. They did x-rays. I had no broken bones, so I was fine. Yeah. And I still didn't know I had a connective tissue problem, but I knew that something was seriously wrong with my ligaments. Yeah. It took, I think it was 14 months of fighting with the doctor before I got an MRI. Yeah. For my shoulder. And was it all with the same facility that you were fighting with? Or did you ultimately end? Yeah. That doctor just kept saying, the x-rays were good. You don't need an MRI. You're like, that's interesting. But a year has passed. And so the question is no longer if a bone is broken. The question is, what's wrong that I am still in pain a year later if it's not a broken bone? Like, ah, doctors. Right. So meanwhile, here I am doing my externship with severe pain <laughs> yeah. to the point where I'm having days that I have to go home early yeah, because I'm in too much pain to sit there and continue to work. For anyone who's ever torn the labrum in their shoulder, it's excruciating. Yeah. I thought migraine pain was bad and there's different kinds of migraine pain and they are bad. Right. But the torn labrum was the most pain that I've ever experienced up to that point. Mm-hmm. So I finally convinced them to do the shoulder surgery. And was it pretty quick after the MRI? The MRI was a fight, but it was revelatory? Or was it 
The MRI was one step in a longer fight. Well, the MRI showed that the labrum was about 90% torn. Mm -hmm. And so what's the next diagnostic procedural HMO step, right? They send you to physical therapy. Yeah. Physical therapy is never going to repair torn connective tissue. No. (laughs) It can't do that. That's not a related problem to what physical therapy does. So I went to physical therapy, which tore the labrum the remaining 10%, so it was now completely ruptured. That makes me want to scream. (laughs) Just because it is such a predictable outcome, and it's such a huge problem. Everything about the relationship between insurance and physical therapy is broken. (laughs) Right. And I, I love physical therapy when it's the correct application. It is so incredibly beneficial. Yeah. And it's but, never covered chronically. It's only covered for acute situations for most people, which is like, right. oh, so the situation where it works, people don't get to go to. But the situation where it doesn't work, but you're using it to defer paying for therapy, we're just going to put everybody into? The logistics <laughs> of some of this stuff, even if I agreed that we should make finances the number one priority in healthcare decisions, but like, I don't agree. And if I did, I would still be mad because it makes no sense. <laughs> Anyway. Yes. Yes. Breach. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that was my side tangent about how mad the insurance PT relationship is. But you had a terrible PT experience, obviously. Tore your remaining 10% of your labrum. That's awful. Right. Right. So I had a surgery to reattach the labrum. Okay. And then we moved again. And... Right before moving, when I separated from the military, I still thought that I was able. Mm-hmm. And it was before I separated prior to 9-11, prior to the military campaigns that have happened subsequently. And there really was not the emphasis on making sure that veterans or transitioning military personnel were aware of and understood their VA healthcare benefits. Mm -hmm. So I did not get screened or apply for disability benefits because I didn't think they applied to me. Yeah. And so it really was not until spousal unit was retiring and going through the process and of course by now we had been involved in oif oef for at least a decade Mm -hmm. and there was a lot more emphasis now on making sure that transitioning military people knew about these benefits gotcha and care and so at the same time i had Vietnam era and Korean War veterans saying to me, you really need to go and apply to the VA healthcare system. We didn't after our wars, and then we got sick and disabled later. And there's a lot of complicated rules, but I served during desert storm during the first Gulf War 
and anyone who served during a wartime period is eligible to apply. Gotcha. You may not get accepted, but you're eligible to apply. And is it for access to VA healthcare, basically, as a veteran, just to qualify for that service, more or less? Yes. So it's a little bit like, and I don't know that much about civilian disability, but it's a little bit like that, as far as I understand it, in that you apply and they have screening physicals and they you know review all your paperwork and if they rate you as 30% disabled or greater okay then you have access to VA healthcare okay if it's less than 30% you may get a small disability check every month but you don't have access to the VA clinics and hospitals. Okay. So then you're still looking for healthcare, however everybody else is doing it, on the marketplace or through whatever it is. Right. Right. So these older veterans were telling me they're not going to be young and healthy forever. And once you meet that threshold and you start to get healthcare from the VA, they will treat you for anything. It doesn't have to be the thing that was originally broken. Right. They're like your main healthcare provider. They're not only managing what would maybe be military-related disability. They're not screening only for that at this Once you have service. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So these older vets were telling me, go apply. Go apply. And see if you can get your foot in the door. Because if nothing else, it's good to have that as a backup. Mm-hmm. And so... Those older vets combined with spousal unit also going through that process and us learning about it, I finally went and applied for VA disability well after I had separated from the military. Mm-hmm. Like quite a and few I've written about that on my blog too. So if anybody's <laughs> interested in, okay, well, I didn't do that then, but I need to do it now or I want to do it now. Not, shameless plug for my blog. They yeah. can go read about it. <laughs> All the details are covered. Perfect. So I applied for VA disability and I got a 30% disabled rating, which I need to appeal to see if I can get it increased because they said that several things that were wrong with me were not military related when in fact they are. Mm -hmm. But I've been too ill since then to go through the appeals process. Yeah. Right, which is perhaps as if it were designed that way to make it difficult for people to appeal because of the disability that brought them to the system in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. It's a widespread systemic problem, obviously, not just this one system. It is. Yeah, it happens outside the VA as well, of course. So we moved, and I got the notification from the VA that... I was, in fact, 30% disabled in their eyes and therefore eligible for VA health care and that I would be assigned to a provider in our new location, but there was a nine-month waiting period. Great. Because they were so backlogged. Yeah. So, my shoulder has been repaired. Yay. Doesn't hurt anymore. Very happy. Okay, wait, sorry. So you had access through your spouse to healthcare 
previously. Yes. And then once your spouse also separated, then this is when you are now looking back for healthcare options. My brain likes yeah. to make sure I understand these details. Because what I was wondering, what brought me to that question was, because the shoulder surgery was done before this, right? Or was it done? Yes. Yes. Okay. So that was done. But of course, you're still obviously looking for good health care. So the shoulder surgery was done before you were getting treated by the VA. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. I'm a Great detail question. person. <laughs> yes. So because spousal unit retired and secured a military pension, mm-hmm. they also part of the benefits of that retirement package was continuing health care for both of us. Okay. Gotcha. So we are incredibly fortunate that because spousal unit also went through the process and was qualified as a disabled veteran, we have two ways to get health care. Right. We have the military retiree health care, and we also have VA health care. Okay, gotcha. Which, it shouldn't be the case that you need more than one path, because some of the <laughs> pathways will fail you repeatedly, but I understand what you, I hear what you're saying. Right. And so this becomes really important. Again, that Twitter thread that I referenced earlier, we talked about privilege and luck and sorry it was a different twitter thread privilege and luck and hard work mm-hmm. and the fact that really it takes all three and so spousal unit and i worked really really hard to be able to have military careers and to be able to qualify for a military retirement but at the same time, I recognize what a privilege that is and mm-hmm. how fortunate we are to now have those redundancies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and guaranteed health care for the rest of our lives is, is huge in the States. Yeah, that is especially right now, no small thing in this country. I say especially right. right now. I don't know exactly when this will came out, but I'm saying that because of the Supreme Court reviewing the ACA again. Sure. But yeah, yeah. it does feel like... Healthcare is under threat a lot of the time because it is. So everything that guarantees a little bit of access is a good thing. We just need so much more. Right, right. And so this now becomes really, really salient because a perfect setup, Brie. Great job. Because I started having to play mom against dad. Mm -hmm. Meaning my military retiree health benefits and the VA health benefits. I waited nine more months to get a VA provider. And to condense the story, basically the military still wasn't recognizing that I had ruptured connective tissue in my wrist, torn connective tissue in my hand, some kind of issue still going on with my elbow Mm -hmm. and probably torn connective tissue in my scapula Mm -hmm. we fixed your shoulder there's no broken bones you're fine you're fine now (laughs) congratulations don't you feel fine we've decided right Right. (laughs) so to try to keep the story from getting ridiculously long i finally got to see a va provider 
and she was fabulous. One of the best providers I've ever had. Yay. Yes. Yes. I, I went there really not expecting much. Mm-hmm. And she listened and took action. <laughs> you know? Yeah, which one of those things where it's like, that's so exciting. I know exactly how that feels. And simultaneously, how is that the bar? That should not be the bar. That's the floor. But yes, I hear right. <laughs> And the whole time that she was my provider, I told her how wonderful she was. And she, every single time she said, I'm just doing my job. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah and you're like you don't understand <laughs> most people don't think this is their job which right again i know there are bigger systemic factors at play but ultimately what happens is that a lot of people are getting very bad care so we're so excited to be heard and maybe yes. helped but even heard yes. yeah so she sent me for mris pieces mm. that were messed up yeah. Or at least we started with the wrist. And so it became where I had a very inadequate military healthcare provider and I had this fabulous VA healthcare provider. And so I would go to her and she would get the diagnostics and then I would take those diagnostic results back to the military side of the house and say I have proof now that this is broken and I want you to fix it. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I did that is most VA hospitals are considered teaching hospitals. Okay. And most of them are co-located with a medical school in the same city. Okay. And so... The VA has, of course, permanent employees, but it also has, at most of their hospitals, a stream of residents. Mm -hmm. And I know people that have had surgeries at VA hospitals and everything's gone great. But we're talking about my wrist was badly damaged and I didn't want to trust the VA to repair that. Mm-hmm. because it's one of the most critical parts of your body. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of research and I found a civilian orthopedic surgeon who I felt comfortable trying. Yeah. And so I went to my retiree healthcare and said, Here's the MRIs, and here's the surgeon that I want, and he accepts this health care, so give me a referral. Make this happen. <laughs> right. And so they did, and I went and met with the orthopedic surgeon, mm-hmm. and at the same time, he was also a military retiree. Okay. And I have friends who are military doctors Mm -hmm. and so I also in addition to all the ways that you can vet a doctor that anyone can vet a doctor yeah I contacted my surgeon military doctor friends and Mm -hmm. said what do you know about this guy yeah 
And so I was checking up on him that way as well. <laughs> and they came back and a surgeon friend of mine whom I trust said he's considered one of the best hand surgeons and I would let him do anything that he wanted to procedurally on me. <laughs> that is a heck of an endorsement. Yes. So I went to this surgeon and he looked at all the imagery and said, at this point it had been 27 months of me fighting with military healthcare to get care for that wrist. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, if you had waited much longer, I would not have been able to repair it. I would have had to just fuse the bones mm -hmm. and you would have had no joint there anymore. Mm -hmm. So he wound up doing three separate procedures on my wrist to repair it. I think all the details are on my blog and I don't know how much you want to get into the weeds about what was broken and what he did to repair it. But he basically had to do three separate procedures to try to repair everything that was wrong with my wrist, which included putting a surgical screw mm. in. Mm -hmm. And the surgery went fantastically. He was really excited by the outcomes and the range of motion that I eventually got back to afterwards. And I was thrilled to have a wrist and no pain. Mm -hmm. Hey, yeah. What you went in for, you actually left with, which is a pretty big deal when it comes to medical interventions. Yes. Yes. And the practice, they had their own operating rooms. It wasn't in a hospital. Oh. And it was a really excellent experience. And mm -hmm. so we let that surgery heal. And then I went back and said, well, what about my elbow? Every time I extended my arm, it would clunk mm -hmm. and something was catching inside the joint. Yeah. And of course there was pain. So we've resolved the shoulder pain. We resolved the wrist pain. I still have elbow pain. I still have scapular pain. Yeah. Those other thoughts are probably like much more on your awareness now than they were when there were four. Right. I knew it was all not correct, but we've been slowly sort of ticking off. Mm -hmm. So more MRIs and he went in and did more he did surgery on my elbow which was two more procedures he didn't exactly he wasn't able to pinpoint exactly what was wrong in there mm. so part of it he was and part of it he wasn't and so he kind of did some things that should help and they did <laughs> you know what I mean? But it wasn't a clean diagnosis in the elbow case. Right. It was like, maybe this will help. It appears that it did. In some ways, this is luck because it could have had less of an impact based on what we understand about what's happening here. Right, right. Yeah. So like he was able to say, okay, yes, you're having a problem with what they call a tennis elbow. I can go in and repair that. Mm -hmm. The pain that you're having, I can didn't know you could do this i can move your nerves over so that they're not as close to the elbow joint <laughs> and maybe not getting impinged yeah yeah and then he's like but the clunking is not a typical symptom and i just removed a huge blob of fat 
and hopefully now the motion is not impinged anymore. You're like, okay. So I wouldn't say it was a perfect result, Mm -hmm. but I'm very satisfied with an excellent surgeon did the best that he could. Right. Which I feel like a really important thing to focus on is that I think most patients recognize the difference between a doctor who is not putting an effort in to figure out what's wrong or not hearing you because they'd rather just ignore you and a doctor who's paying attention and limited by the limits of medical science because of course they're there. We haven't actually solved medicine. We don't have Star Trek medicine yet. Patients know, we can tell the difference. I think that's important. Exactly. And this surgeon is one of only two providers that I've seen in my entire life where I came in and said, here's the literature that I've read and here's what I understand and here's what I suspect. And he said, okay, great. Here's a couple more articles I would recommend to you. Yeah. He's one of only two doctors that I've swapped literature with. Yeah. (laughs) He wasn't intimidated by me as a patient. He was thrilled that Mm -hmm. I wanted to be that involved with my care. Yeah. So there was definitely a level of not only trust, but also mutual respect. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you can obviously tell when a provider is just going through the motions. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when someone's enthusiastic about their job as a doctor or whatever. I know doctors have bad days, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, when they're interested and curious, it comes off very differently than when they're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. You're wrong. And you're like, exactly. Okay, well, it's fine if my theory doesn't make sense, but my symptom is still present. So would you meet me halfway here on the detective work? Exactly. If it's not that, then what do you propose that it could be? Yeah. Let's assume it's not nothing, which people talk about a lot. Let's reject the null hypothesis and go from there. Exactly. So now we live through the recovery from the elbow surgery. And of course there's PT after these surgeries and everything. And long story short, it wound up being five surgeries, most of them having multiple procedures, but five separate incidences of going to have a surgery and recovering afterwards because the original shoulder surgery started to fail. Mm. It turns out that in anybody older than about 30, labral repairs don't have a high success rate. So my new surgeon wound up, of course, we had to get more imaging and my new surgeon that had done my hand and my elbow now went in and did what they call a revision surgery, which is anytime they have to go in a subsequent time for the the same same body part. Yeah, so he went in to do a revision on the shoulder and then we kept an eye on the wrist. He put the surgical screw in there and originally he was like, we used to put them in there and just leave them in there, but now, you know, I was reading all the literature and it was saying most people didn't leave them in longer than 12 months. And so he said, well, it's stable, it's healthy, I'm going to leave it in there until we have a reason to take it out. Mm -hmm. So I think it was somewhere between 14 and 18 months after the wrist surgery, 
that my wrist started to hurt again. Mm. And we had more imaging done, and the screw was starting to move and impinge on the range of motion. Gotcha. So the fifth surgery, he went in and took the screw out, and then he had to do something to fill that hole, and I won't get into details, out of respect for your vagal nerve. <laughs> <That's> appreciated <laughs> by my entire autonomic nervous system. <laughs> Does not like anatomy. Yeah, that was the fifth surgery, and this is how cool my surgeon was. In recovery, he said, I figured you were the type of patient that would want to keep their screws, so here you go. I kept <laughs> it for you. <laughs> you know, if they know, they know. <laughs> exactly. So I now have the screw. They sanitized it. I now have the screw that was inside my wrist for about a year and a half. The screw that lived in you. Yes. And he said, scapulas are super tricky and the success rate for surgery is so low that I don't want to touch your scapula. I believe you that you have pain. I believe you that something is wrong back there. But I don't recommend surgery unless it gets to a point that you just can't live with it. Yeah. So we didn't repair that. <laughs> so all of this was happening while I was doing my externship and then after my externship. So I had done all my coursework. I did my comprehensive exams for my PhD after my first shoulder surgery, but before everything else was repaired. And okay. then I did two externships while everything was, you know, yeah. not repaired. While the wheels are falling off the bus. Yes, yes. This is what I'm trying to paint the picture, that I was doing my PhD and my body began to catastrophically fail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I managed to do all the coursework to a level at which I was inducted into a national or international honor society, did the comprehensive exams, did a master's thesis because the master was embedded in the PhD, yeah. did prestigious externships, and of course I'm still getting migraines, but that's secondary to all the ruptured tissue that's giving me so much pain. Yeah. And I finally get through all of the repair surgeries. And my advisor just sort of keeps giving me continuances on getting my dissertation proposal submitted. Mm -hmm. And I had started working with a research team. So I had been going to conferences and submitting papers and book chapters and whatnot, all the things that you do. Academic stuff. Right, all that academic stuff. <laughs> while I'm getting all these diagnostics and surgeries and yeah. everything else. So I think, all right, we've gotten that resolved. Now maybe I can finally do my dissertation and finish my degree. And that's when I started having 
the energy limitations and the cognitive functioning issues. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as you're gearing up for the next stage, yeah, the next stage of extreme cognitive output. Yeah, and spousal unit told me recently that they think it actually started earlier than that. Mm-hmm. They think that I was having those energy and cognitive issues while I was doing my first externship. Mm-hmm. So I was working between 20 and 40 hours a week and then coming home and spousal unit said, you really didn't have energy for anything else. Yeah. So, but I, I hadn't really recognized that yet. <laughs> right. Well, it's like the boiling frog thing. Your energy is siphoned away or your cognitive function or likely both. But it's like at such a slow rate initially that it feels like maybe I just slept poorly last night. Like there's so many other more op- obvious plausible examples that can explain being tired but it's like the cumulative impact of being that tired all the time is not really explained by whatever rationale right yeah i was doing a research externship and i would come home and and tell spousal unit i can't brain anymore i've used up my brain for the day but i just somehow was telling myself oh that's just because this job is so cognitively demanding Mm-hmm. It's not because anything was different in my body, right? It was circumstances, not me. Yeah, it's incidental. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but we reached a point where I was doing these surgeries and I was still trying to be a good research team member, but I was starting to spend most of my days just laying on the couch and... And I was starting to, my research team took turns being the lead on the various projects. And, you know, I got one project about 85% done, 90% done, and had to hand it off to somebody else to get it over the finish line. Yeah. And I started missing conferences and, you know, it was becoming... Or not being able to follow through on commitments like being a journal reviewer and various things. So... When it started significantly affecting my work mm-hmm. is when I finally recognized the severity of the problem. Yeah. And how were you interpreting it at that time? Were you thinking of it as fatigue and cognitive stuff? Was that the language that you were using? Do you remember? You know, I think I really got the awareness of cognitive dysfunction as a term and as a symptom from you before I was just calling it brain fog. Yeah. And before I would sometimes have cognitive effects from my migraines, but they were so transient that I didn't really accept them as a limitation to the same extent. Yeah. And if it seems like obviously migraine is on such a spectrum, but yeah, if you expect it to pass, then it feels really different than something that you're like, I don't really know what's causing this or when or if it's ever going to alleviate. Right, right. And if my cognitive symptoms lasted a half day or two days, you can kind of work around that when you're a student, if it's short like that. But the effects were getting greater, they were lasting longer, And then with the fatigue as well, when I just couldn't 
perform up to my own standards anymore and I I couldn't fulfill my obligations anymore. Mm-hmm. When it got to the point where it didn't matter how hard I paddled underwater, it was glaringly obvious to the entire world that I was not able to <laughs> perform. You were no longer like in tight formation with those other ducks. You are definitely not yes. living the same life as the other ducks anymore. It is apparent yes. in the water. Yeah. Like sleeping in place. Yes. I was in some combination of denial or stubbornness or pride or internalized ableism or whatever. I mean, I fought for probably four years to stay in my PhD and to try to meet the requirements. Mm Mm-hmm. I did not relinquish my PhD. It was ripped from my bloody fingers. Yeah. And it was one of the greatest traumas of my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, I accomplished what I set out to do. Yeah. (laughs) Up until that point, that was, that was my first great failure. Yeah. And do you, chronic illness in academia is such a complicated and messy thing and even more so in 2020, which I know that's not, this is pre everything that's happened this year, but was it, were you looking into accommodations at all? I don't mean to phrase it that way. I'm sure that you had created a million incidental accommodations, but had you gone to your disability office at all? Was that an option or was that something that you were thinking about? Or like, what was that side of things like before you left? That's an excellent question. So I had gotten ridiculously lucky. Back to that combination of hard work and privilege and luck. Mm -hmm. I had gotten ridiculously lucky and I was one of two grad students in the entire program, in the whole department, that had an office with a window. (laughs) Nobody else had windows. A lot of the faculty didn't have windows. And I had this little sliver of a window, and so I could have some natural light because fluorescent lights are really bad for most of us with migraines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I brought in a bunch of lamps from home. So I had made my own accommodations and got ridiculously lucky with the circumstances Mm -hmm. and had never asked for any accommodations when I was doing the coursework. Mm Mm-hmm. I honestly didn't really even know that that was a thing you could do. Yeah, I I wouldn't have at the time that I was a grad student either. Like So when I was desperately fighting and trying to do the dissertation, at one point I had even moved back to my university's town. Mhm. And it sounds kind of radical if you're not a military family, but I had left spousal unit and canine back in our retirement home. Mm-hmm. And I just like, okay, I'm going to go back to town and try to you know get an apartment and try to see if I can finish the dissertation in a year. Mm-hmm. And at that point people had started to tell me that there should be a disability office at my school and I could ask for accommodations. 
And so I found the office and I went and made an appointment and I met with one of the disability officers, whatever their title was. And I said, I'm having a lot of cognitive issues. And what I really need is somebody to help me organize my proposal, structure it and do a sanity check on it. I need a reviewer. Mm -hmm. And they said, we don't offer anything like that for graduate students. There's a reading help center you can go to as an undergraduate, but basically their attitude was by the time that you're a graduate student, you should know how to do those things. And if you can't, you don't really belong here. Right. But they didn't say that. It was very much the, we kind of know what to do to help you if you are visibly disabled and we have no idea and no services if you are invisibly disabled. Right. And so I was just sitting there going, well, this is what I need. And they were saying, well, that doesn't even exist. Yeah. And so that was my experience of trying to get accommodations. Meanwhile, while my advisor was good in some areas, they also had been a drag on my progress throughout my career because they would keep changing their minds about what they wanted. So there were delays and obstacles from my advisor, from my department, I, I can't get into a lot of details without potentially doxing myself. Yeah, that's but fine. <laughs> I had gone to my advisor and said, this isn't working. This is what I need. And he promised to do better, but then go back to the same old ways. Yeah. I'd gone to the department head and asked about transferring to a different advisor. There were a couple advisors who were really good about helping their students progress right instead of delaying their progress they like a different approach to mentorship yes and my department head didn't want to get involved in the politics of my program yeah and he also didn't want to allow me to transfer to the advisor that i wanted Mm-hmm. He offered me sort of a lateral move to a different advisor who I wasn't convinced was going to be any better at helping me get through it. Right. And so I felt like I was drowning and I was asking for help in the only ways that I knew how. And nobody was bothered because there was no incentive for them to make sure that I actually completed. Right. It's not an important metric to them. And one of the things that's so hard about this, which you just really described, is that we don't, with some of the stuff, so some cognitive function, it's so poorly articulated. And most people don't go see a neuropsychologist who will run the test and tell you, you know, like your working memory is impaired, whatever it is, there's so many things that it could be or a combination of things that it could be. But most of us don't know what the one specific real hurdle is because it doesn't we don't experience a working memory delay we just experience brain not working i think about this with work too or it can be so hard to have that conversation about what accommodations work because what it sounds like as per your experience is like 
I don't know how to do the brain work required for this. And they're like, oh, sounds like you're not qualified. That's not the problem. But the language to articulate that is not universal yet. Maybe we're having these conversations within the disability community, and then maybe some people who work adjacent to that are a part of them. But like, if you don't need extensions, and you don't need to be allowed to miss classes, like you need more meaningful support in your workflow, it's not standardized, to say the least. Like, it's a naughty problem, I feel like, and not in a way that I want to defend anybody who's reinforcing it. I just like, it's, it, I find it hard to wrap my head around is what I'm saying. <laughs> and I am violently nodding in agreement with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that reminds me that part of my VA screening physical, I had said that I was having cognitive issues and as part of my screening medical, I saw a, a VA psychologist. Mm -hmm. So he had reviewed my file. And when I arrived, he basically said, so what's your issue? And I kind of tried to describe it to him. And he interrupted me and said, but you're still in grad school, right? And I said, yes. And he said, you're in a doctoral program. And I said, yes. Basically, his mind was made up before I ever arrived that if I was in a doctoral program, there was nothing cognitively wrong with me. Yeah, th those just couldn't coexist. Not possible. Right. So I saw a psychologist, but he never even dreamed of referring me to a specialist like you mentioned. Yeah. Because in his framework, there couldn't possibly be anything significantly wrong with me or I couldn't be struggling if I was still managing to be in a doctoral program even though at that point I had already stalled out yeah and you as an adult didn't have the tools to assess whether or not your cognitive performance has changed even if you didn't know the specific ways in which it was compromised is also intriguing I don't ever understand why we don't get believed, except that it's easier to just pretend there's no problem if you don't know how to help it. But like the thinking behind it, that somebody would specifically bring something like this up in that context, if it weren't important or seriously impacting you, it wouldn't even be on your mind. It just doesn't even make sense. Whew. Right. I, I would have nothing to gain by spuriously bringing that up. Yeah, a spurious neuropsych testing to find out what interventions you might be able to do. Yeah. Right. Ooh. Like, oh, I could be finishing my PhD and launching my second career, but I would rather be stuck in this diagnostic limbo because I like the attention or whatever other reason they always attribute. Yeah to us chronically ill and disabled. The secondary gains, etc. Yes, thank you. Yeah, the worst. <laughs> so, somebody else on Twitter said, when you compare the secondary gains with the primary losses, yes. it's... <laughs> yeah, that was a good one, and exactly on point. It doesn't even... The scale does not level out. So I was thinking, what, does this guy feel personally threatened if a doctoral candidate could have mental problems, then, oh my gosh, it could happen to anybody? Yeah. You know, like, 
The world isn't just. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. So, that, all of it, yeah, it's hard. Cognitive dysfunction. It's hard to get people to take seriously and recognize and believe, and it's hard to accommodate because we're not having those conversations yet, I don't think, or not, not in this kind of population. Okay, so are we caught up to the present yet? I know that we're not actually. We must be close though, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like we basically, oh, yes and no. The other really significant puzzle piece that we haven't brought in yet is I did go to the VA hospital while all these other surgeries and recoveries were happening. I had a different physical issue and I was going to let the VA do the procedure for that. And I went to the hospital to have the procedure and they had a new protocol. This was before COVID, but they had a new protocol for pre-op to try to reduce MRSA. Multiply resistant staff, right, whatever. Right. Yeah. So they told me, and I'd already had several surgeries in other facilities and had never done this before, but at this VA hospital, they told me to take these antiseptic wipes, body wipes, and wipe my entire body apart from my face and my groin wipe my entire body down with these antiseptic wipes and then let them air dry. Let my skin air dry. Don't rinse it off. Put on the hospital gown. So I did that and they wheeled me off to go get ready for my surgery and there was some kind of a backup. They were delayed. And probably somewhere between 45 minutes to an hour after when my surgery had been scheduled to start, I had a severe allergic reaction to the antiseptic wipes. Had a feeling that's where this was going. Yes. Which I also blogged about. <laughs> but it turns out that I am severely allergic to chlorhexidine. Okay. And so you were able to identify the specific thing fortunately the surgery they had not i had a port but they had not put anything in it yet they had started an iv not a port they had started an iv right you had the connection yes so i've got the needle in my arm and i've got the little pigtail tube yeah but i wasn't hooked up to anything yet so yes very fortunately we were able to isolate it to the chlorhexidine because i hadn't been administered anything else yet yeah and so I had this severe allergic reaction. It is most common for people's blood pressure to go low when they're having a, an allergic reaction. Okay. But I am in the minority of people whose blood pressure goes high. Okay. Congratulations. So my blood pressure, <laughs> thank you. My blood pressure went up to like 185 over 110. <laughs> and the nurse said what nurses everywhere always say, oh, your blood pressure's a bit high. <laughs> You're like, okay, sure, sure. But anyway, I mean, 
I started flushing. I got hives. I was having an obvious external skin reaction Mm -hmm. as well as then the blood pressure going high and everything else. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that episode was the epigenetic trigger that activated what was going on in my body. I mean, this gene that I had that was dormant Mm -hmm. and that's when I started having allergic type reactions to everything. And prior to that, when I first started having the vertigo, I had gone to an allergist as part of the workup. Mm -hmm. And they had told me that I was allergic to mold. Okay. And so that was my only known allergy at that point. But after this episode in the hospital, I was reacting to everything. What a strange unprecedented thing (laughs) (laughs) sorry so you're reacting to everything that completely changed my life yeah that really was the trigger for me becoming identifying as chronically ill and disabled because it altered what i was able to do to such a degree and then this year finally because i i don't know how long we've been talking but I was finally, I paid out of pocket to go to an expert and was diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome. And had you in between, because you've talked about connective tissue a lot and obviously the injuries, at what point did you start thinking about it as a systemic connective tissue problem as opposed to an injury that just for some reason wasn't healing? Was there a transfer point? I know you're talking about mast cell, but we both know that they may be related. So that's why I'm asking. You and I know that they're all interconnected, right? That there's a comorbidity between mast cell issues and connective tissue issues. Uh, Just to clarify for people who aren't us. Tangentially, a really strange thing about this kind of, this is the second podcast interview that I've done. So it'll be the third, probably episode in the new batch. There's one more old one to come out, but it's like, I've learned so much in the last year. And I think most of the people that I talk to, especially in this round, are Twitter people. So they're like, we're all having one conversation almost all the time that I think is going to change the tone of the podcast for people who are also Twitter people, which is not everyone. But yes, so we both know and are like, (laughs) of course, everyone who talks to us on the internet knows that hypermobility, mass cell issues, et cetera, are probably related. And anyone who listens to the podcast probably knows if they've listened to all of them, because of course it's come up quite a few times already. But I I think I'm asking different questions this round. So. Sure. So yeah, Yeah. so at some point you didn't know any of that. Right. And you had this injury. I think for me, it probably started with when I had the slip and fall injury and I started to see providers for it, Mm -hmm. for all of the complications, whatever, that they were all shocked when I described how I got injured. Mm -hmm. The fact that I slipped standing on a floor hardly moving, I turned, slipped, fell, and did so much damage. Right. Like, nothing about that is expected. Right. Yes. You're supposed to break a bone. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you had fractured your wrist, maybe, maybe we'd be talking. (laughs) Gosh. 
So for me, it started with everybody saying, wait, mm-hmm. how did you, right. you, all you did was fall down and you ruptured things from your hand all the way through your back. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. So I started to perceive that this was in fact not normal. Yeah, that the scope, um, like the scope of the injury suggested that there, to use a horrible phrase, that there was a pre-existing condition. Yes, yeah. yes. That there was something underlying all this yeah. that would have to explain how it happened. Yeah, the context. Right. So for me, that's when I started learning more about connective tissue. And... I wasn't very far into understanding any of that when I had the allergic reaction in pre-op. Right. That was like a completely unexpected. Then had all these allergic issues. And it was really through that research and learning about mast cell Mm -hmm. that I then found people who were also talking about connective tissue problems. Okay, so that was kind of the direction that you learned about it, even if it wasn't the direction that your body showed the symptoms. Yeah. Everybody who's paid any attention on Twitter knows how much I appreciate Lisa Klimas and Mast Attack and her scientific, evidence-based approach to helping people understand mast cell issues Mm -hmm. and people in that community have helped me learn about EDS, about connective tissue problems, and about dysautonomia and POTS, Mm -hmm. which I don't have any diagnoses, and we haven't talked about that. Uh, Yeah, I was going to ask if you had any suspicions of any dysautonomia. I don't think that I have pots but i do suspect that i do have some dysautonomial issues Mm -hmm. which given how (laughs) intertwined they are fair enough if i look back now knowing what i know when the air force transitioned with their annual physical exam there was a period where they transitioned from doing a one and a half mile run to doing a bicycle test, a stationary bike test. Okay. And so you would get on this stationary bike, and I don't even remember what it was you were supposed to do, but again, I thought that I was very physically fit, I was very active, and yet whenever they transitioned to this bike test, this stationary bike test, I had significant issues because my heart rate always went too high too fast. Uh Uh-huh, yep. And so I was in danger of of failing this test, even though I wasn't overweight at the time. You know, I met all the Air Force standards. I had an active lifestyle, but my heart rate didn't behave the way that the Air Force thought that it should. Right. Right. Yeah. Your heart rate has a mind of its own, I guess, called your autonomic nervous system. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so I can look back and see a few episodes of syncope even in my childhood. Mm-hmm. But again, it's not the biggest we fire. were all healthy and we just picked ourselves up and dusted ourselves off and kept going. So Yeah. Yeah. Like 
Gosh, I say this about so many things now. This is a real testament to how far the line has moved. But like with POTS, if you're not fainting all the time, I'm not saying it's okay. I think everyone should have management. I think all of these things. But honestly, if you're not fainting all the, all the time from POTS, it's probably not your biggest problem. That's when it, you know, like that's the level. Sure. Which, sure. not to undermine anyone's experience, I have very variable POTS and that's why I'm saying that. Because sometimes it doesn't register to me at all and sometimes it's like, oh, POTS is happening now. This is what we're going to think about and try to manage. But I think mast cell stuff is like that too. Some people have really severe anaphylactic responses and some people are like, yeah, sometimes I get hives and it's a pain in the ass, but so far it's not the most disruptive thing. These are the ways that like comparison doesn't help us, but like recognizing the ways that these spectra can work paints a different picture. It is still present, even if it's not disabling. That doesn't mean you don't get to acknowledge it. Right, right. (laughs) And what I was going to say is doctors don't seem to recognize a lot of these conditions until you're at the furthest extreme. Yeah. And so I don't want this analogy to sound arrogant, but this is the analogy that I've been using in my own head i feel like when i was young you know when i was in the military that my body was kind of like a very finely tuned european sports car and i was aware enough to notice when it would get slightly out of tune Mm -hmm. and i would take it to the doctor who in this analogy is a mechanic right (laughs) and the average mechanic is going to say well you didn't throw a rod you didn't blow a gasket there's nothing wrong with this vehicle and it's only if you can happen to get a mechanic who specializes in high-end european sports cars that they can see that you are somewhat out of parameters and they can repair it mm-hmm. yeah and with that one of the things that's so frustrating is that i think we as a patient community have become so anecdotally aware that like a lot of these conditions are degenerative and in ways that we don't fully understand. And also a lot of these conditions can be relatively stabilized with a little bit of luck, privilege, and hard work. So not for everybody, luck is a huge factor here, but people are able to stabilize in a way that really can manage degeneration, but You have to catch it early enough that you actually have some levers to play with. And when doctors are sending people home, not unlike your shoulder tear, when doctors are sending people home because you don't meet the threshold for scary enough that you deserve immediate care, like people are just getting punted down the line and it's causing all of this further degradation that doesn't have to happen. If they could all just get enough awareness to recognize that like this I need to refer to a specialty mechanic then I think we'd make some progress here like totally agree it just looks different exactly and it's incredibly frustrating to be the patient who knows that your conditions are degenerating and that you may not be able to get care until it's become so catastrophic that the everyday average mechanic slash doctor can finally recognize your problem Yeah. And that feeds into partly the PT surgery thing, which is that like, if everybody who was hypermobile learned their body mechanics from a pretty young age from somebody who was a physical therapist, this is one of my big dreams, we would see so many fewer, so fewer injuries and surgeries and not stuff happens, bad luck happens. I'm not saying that we're hurting ourselves on purpose, but like, we would all have such bigger toolkits to manage 
everything and prevent these, in some cases, huge blowouts, if only we could like learn proper prevention. And I don't mean that in a moralizing patriarchal way. I mean that right now they're just lying to us. And so we're not able to take action. (sighs) Right. What I hear you saying is, especially hypermobile people, if we could be like identified and taught how to care for ourselves in childhood, we could prevent a lot of things that would actually cost the medical system a lot more down the road, not to mention the cost to ourselves. Yeah, I think that the moral argument is enough, but I actually do think that there's probably a pretty strong financial argument to be made, but we don't have the data for that yet. Or no one's collecting it. I mean, especially because it's genetic. It's like, okay, so we know that there is an apparently significant chunk of people who are mutated in such a way that their connective tissue functions differently, and it's pretty identifiable, and we could be doing something. So it's a very frustrating picture to start to see, as I'm sure everybody knows. A related question that I have, since I kind of derailed you when you were saying you were formally diagnosed with MCAS, which is... A big deal. Had yes. you already been looking at treatment options or was that also a turning point for you from a management perspective, symptom management perspective? Treatment of my MCAS symptoms? Yeah. So after I had the allergic reaction in pre-op, mm-hmm. which, thank God, because when I looked at the literature, had I already been under anesthesia, it's possible that I could have anaphylaxed and even died yeah that sounds like a very scary combination right so that was definitely in my book very fortunate that it happened in the way that it did Mm -hmm. but i got a referral to an allergist Mm -hmm. and so that started my uh, journey of trying to figure out what was going on with my body now that this trigger had been you know the switch had been flipped Because for people who aren't us that will hear this podcast, with mast cell issues, people become hypersensitive to what would be considered a normal stimulus your body may see as a threat. Mm -hmm. So I was having reactions to perfumes, colognes, dryer sheets. Not that those things were in my house because of migraine, but in the everyday world now, my bubble that I was able to exist in had been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Reactions to wildfire smoke, campfires, just so many things that I was spending more and more time at home with my air purifier. Mm -hmm. But I saw this allergist and he was the second out of two providers that I've ever seen that I was swapping literature with. Mm-hmm. He, he was very familiar with mold allergies, but he didn't really know that much about mast cell. And so I was bringing literature in for him, and he was giving me literature about mold allergies and different things. And so, of course, another extensive overhaul to the diet. Right. Because he was telling me that, you know, if you're allergic to mold, then you should avoid anything aged, pickled, cured, fermented. I'm missing a couple, but... is that Does that basically line up with low histamine? Just like based on what that list was, do you know? Why, yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, I was like, is that a low histamine list? Because there are many lists to choose from when you're managing symptoms through diet. Yeah. Well, he had never heard of a low histamine diet, but he was an old school allergist 
whose father had been an allergist. Mm. And he became an allergist because so many people in his family had allergies. Mm. And he said, most modern allergists do not talk about a mold elimination diet anymore. Mm -hmm. But I still think it helps. And so he had given me this mold elimination diet. Yeah. And then I went and did a bunch of research and found out that, yeah, it overlaps very significantly with a low histamine diet. Yeah. And incidentally, I am not as deep into the literature on Massile in general because I just frankly resent how deep I've had to get into so many of these wormholes and I'm not emotionally ready. I hear you. But mold can be one of the triggering events. As we talk about mast cell and you said that reaction was probably what turned it on for you. Mold exposure, because this can overlap with the world of ME in an interesting way that we do not need to talk about. But mold can also be a trigger for mast cell and viral infections can be a trigger for mast cell, which is a big conversation right now around COVID. We don't know enough, but also we're learning so much that these pieces have started to click together and so many stories through that lens can start to make a little bit more sense, which I find compelling when you're like, oh, there's five diets floating around that are all basically eliminating the same set of things. I wonder if that's because they help people with the same problem. That would be interesting. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because I had dabbled in things like the South Beach diet and the paleo diet, and they had helped. Mm -hmm. And it's, like you say, eliminating a lot of the same foods. Yeah. Yes, and I don't want us to wander too far away, but when my vertigo started, I was living in an old, like, hundred-something-year-old European house with a moldy cellar, a basement where, of course, the laundry room was, so you had to go down there, and and who knows if that was the trigger that turned on my migraines. Right. You know, it's hard to say. Yeah. There was something else you were saying about mold and mast cell... I think it was an activator, possibly a trigger. Also, ME. Oh, what? Thank you. What I wanted to say was I have not found a lot of literature on this yet. It is somewhat speculative on my part. I don't want to lead anybody astray. I do think that there is a link between histamine and migraine as well. Mm-hmm. That histamine is one of the only substances that that we know that crosses the blood-brain barrier. And it is possible that the strong comorbidity between migraine and mast cell has to do with that histamine mechanism. Right. All of these diagnoses or experiences or symptoms, they really cluster together in some patterned ways. This is 100% right. of them. So many people in this space have migraine as a part of their experience. Right. It, yeah. Because it also makes sense to me, and I know some other people who are probably mostly Twitter people, but are in the same space where, yeah, migraine's the primary, but like mast cell is one of the things they're going after. And I I wonder too, as you said, literally in this story, like migraine, we often go after triggers first too, which is interesting for something that isn't uh, GI, so. Right, right. So to answer your question about my treatment of mast cell, I saw this allergist. And we reached a point where, God bless him, he said, you're beyond my level of expertise. And he referred me up to a allergist immunologist. And 
triptase has been touted as the primary marker of mast cell Mm -hmm. by a large group of mast cell care providers. Mm -hmm. And my triptase kept coming back in the normal range. So I went and saw this other specialist and the VA sent me to an allergist and they all kept saying, well, I don't think that you actually have mast cell, but, and they would all kind of add something. So the first allergist put me on an H1 blocker, an H2 blocker, and then the VA allergist added Singulair, which is a leukotriene blocker, and then the allergist immunologist added Gastrochrom, and then... uh, We moved again. We thought that we had found our forever home and we were there and I just kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And I finally felt like if we live here one more winter, I may not make it. And so we moved. We moved to a completely different climate, a completely different altitude and a completely new set of doctors. (laughs) (laughs) Hurrah! So I had built um, a team at my last location of doctors and providers that I trusted and respected, and I was starting all over again. But the good thing about starting all over again sometimes is that somebody suggests something new. And so it was my allergist down here who suggested Zolaire. Mm -hmm. So I've been kind of cobbling together this treatment plan. But now the VA was telling me, well, we don't think you actually have mast cell. So we want to take you off of some of these medications. And I knew that they were helping So that's when I decided to just suck it up and pay out of pocket because fortunately we could afford to, which is a huge privilege, and got an appointment and waited all the months and months and months and went and saw one of the experts who was in the camp that you don't have to have high triptase. Right. And so went and did all of the testing all over again and my prostaglandins are super high and always have been and so I had several of the tests come back with different ways of looking at prostaglandins that were all diagnostic they were obviously high and he said yes you do have this and then I was able to take that back to the VA and say yes I do have this don't take my medicine away right (laughs) And are they receptive to that or have they been receptive to, I know this has been a tactic you've used before, but kind of coming in with the external diagnosis? I have found almost every doctor to honor diagnostic data. Mm -hmm. They may not believe me, but if I have something in writing with numbers or pictures, they will honor that. Yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, so now you are blocking all of the histamine. That's how I'm sure scientists would describe it. Keeping those mast cells granulated, I guess. Yes. Yes. (laughs) These are all of my science terms because the problem in mast cells is that your mast cells 
degranulate, and that yes. is an allergic reaction causing all of the signs of an allergic reaction. That was a terrible summary. Right. But so <laughs> H1 blockers and H2 blockers are both histamine blockers. I'm saying this for people listening now. H1 blockers are like Zyrtec, et cetera. There's two types of H1 blockers. Now I'm just info dumping. Benadryl is an H1 blocker, but it is a different kind of H1 blocker from like Zyrtec, Zizol, et cetera. And then H2 blockers are heartburn medication. Is that what they're marketed as? Is that right? Yes. Acid reducers. Zantac was everybody's favorite, and then it got pulled recently, which has been a whole thing. And so I feel like famotidine is everywhere, which is Pepsi. Yes. (laughs) And then, yeah. Yes. So those are my big contributions for anyone listening who has not picked up any of those details but wanted to know. And that's all. I mean, that's all from the Mass Attack website. There are actually four known histamine receptors, H1 through H4. And we do not have any medications currently to block H3 or H4 receptors. Right. And I know some people, I think, maybe they talk about this on Mass Attack, are like trying to experiment with supplements and other like sources that might yes. operate as H3, H4 blockers. But I, I haven't, again, I have not gone deep into that rabbit hole yet. So I don't know the details of it, but the information's out there, I guess, if anyone has been really looking for histamine blocking science. (laughs) Right, right. And I did go through a period of time where I tried a lot of vitamins and supplements for my migraines. I feel like a few of them helped, most of them didn't. And I haven't really played around with a lot of vitamins or supplements to treat my mast cell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, quercetin is the only one that I can think. I know that there are other ones, but I right. feel like that's the first one that people try. Quercetin and also some people genetically have an issue with DAOs. Hmm. And I don't remember what that acronym stands for. But if you actually are genetically tested and that is an issue for you, then there are other vitamins and supplements that you can take to help correct that. Hmm. Yeah, it's the whole world out there of personalized medicine that we are still unlocking. Yeah. Okay, so formal diagnosis, hodgepodge of histamine blockers, etc., mast cell stabilizers, plus diet. And is that more or less what you've been up to lately? <laughs> Fun as that sounds. Yes, we traveled to see this mast cell specialist at the end of February and then came home at the very beginning of March. And basically, I've only left the house for medical appointments since then. Mm -hmm. And most of those have been, in fact, either canceled or converted to telehealth. Right. But fortunately, again, fate, luck, whatever... The doctor had called and said they had a cancellation and they could move it forward to February. And I was able to go and see the specialist before things got really scary. Yeah. So, yes, my allergist here put me on Zolaer injections, which have helped stabilize my mast cells because as you say 
ranitidine, Zantac, got recalled, and that was making a significant difference for me, and famotidine does not manage as many of my symptoms as mm-hmm. ranitidine did. But the Zolaire is helping to kind of take up the slack, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I was having to drive, well, spousal unit was driving me hours to the VA hospital each way once a month to get Zolaire injections. And so then, of course, it was days of recovery afterwards. But one advantageous thing that happened with COVID for me was that the VA which had previously not authorized self-administration of Zolaire. In fact, I know there were people in the UK that could do it, but I don't think anybody was authorizing it in the US because you can have a severe anaphylactic reaction to Zolaire Mm. in some people. But because I had already trialed Zolaire, at the hospital Mm. they make you wait for at least a half hour after the injection yeah because i had already trialed it and i wasn't reacting to it so i was already an established patient the va changed its national policy due to covid and i i got authorized to give myself the injections at home so that would be a big time saver etc so they started mailing me the medication And because I was no longer having to take this arduous trek up to the VA hospital, my provider increased the interval so that I'm now taking it every two weeks instead of every four weeks. Mm -hmm. And that has been a very positive thing for me this year. Yeah, that's a bunch of shifts. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, I think my angry mast cells have really caused my connective tissue issues to significantly worsen. Mm -hmm. And so now I am frantically bracing and icing and everything else. I saw a patient while I was up at the VA getting my quarterly Botox for migraines who had a rollator and I'd never even seen one before. didn't know what it was, mm-hmm. but she had a rollator and I saw her walking with it. And then I saw her turn around and sit down and wait for an appointment. And I literally walked up to her as any veteran would do and said, what is that? How do I get one? <laughs> yeah. Where do I get my rolling seat? <laughs> like not a wheelchair. I want to walk, but I want to sit all the time. Tell me about my options. <laughs> Yes. And so she told me what it was called. She told me the VA gave her one. I went to my primary and said, I want one of these. And they said, here you go. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Not bad. Yes. Again, very fortunate. I feel like the VA, the quality of care is very spotty. And... They don't necessarily have the world's premier experts on anything. But if you want medications or aids, they will give them to you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would imagine that like 
bias is complicated. However, one of the ways that bias works is that if you're expecting that all of your patients have already qualified as disabled, you might feel less like it's your job to gatekeep them away from mobility aids. Because a weird thing that happens in some patient populations when doctors are like, no, I don't want to give you a mobility aid because then you would be disabled. It's like, no, that's not how that works, actually. (laughs) The mobility aid isn't the difference. I know it's the visual indicator, but it's not the thing that changed. So I wonder. Yeah, I agree with you. And I also think that's a fascinating point. Because it's a gatekeeping mechanism that makes no sense. As right. soon as you become familiar with the community and see that the way that people choose to get mobility aids does not work the way that the mainstream narrative about mobility aids works. Like, you, you're giving right. up if you use it or whatever, whatever, whatever. And meanwhile, all of the patient conversations are like, my mobility aid made it so I could leave my house again. I'm so happy. It is the opposite of giving up in pretty much every way. And mobility aids are annoying. If you don't need one, you will forget it somewhere because you don't need it. Many strong things to say about this, I guess. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting that doctors don't tell us you don't really need glasses. Yeah. And they don't tell us you don't really need hearing aids. Yeah. So what is it about using a mobility aid that they somehow think that magically makes you disabled. Yeah. And gosh, those biases are weird because glasses are such an interesting example because it exists. There are places where people believe that not optometrists, obviously optometrists do not tell you that, but like there are people who are like, Oh, I don't want to get glasses because then my eyesight will get worse because my eyes will get lazy. I have heard that, but it is not a mainstream position. But it, like, it sounds ridiculous because it is so far from the common. But yeah, that's what people think about canes and roll, like all of them. You're like, no, that's not how tools work. It's not. Right, right. Oof. Yeah, nobody tells you, oh, well, you can't have a shovel because then you'd become dependent on it. You have to keep using your hands to dig in the yard. Yeah, just don't get used to making your life easier in any way. <laughs> oh, that's a fun one. But you have a rollator. I do have a rollator. It's a good thing. I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm only using it on long days mm-hmm. for the most part. But even my connective tissue issues are such that my knees and my ankles and my SI joint are very painful if I have to stand for more than a few minutes. Mm-hmm. And so just having the option to sit down when I need to sit down is... Yeah major yeah 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 standing is someone i think asked about this on twitter recently but like when i can walk not all the time but when i'm able to walk usually like walking is actually no big deal but standing is almost always not not comfortable like right right yeah so i i do the micro walks that i've talked about you Mm -hmm. know and I I walk for anywhere from 8 to 12 minutes a night. And if I push it, then my knees become inflamed. And I am at a point now where I have to wear braces on my knees and my SI joint when I walk. Mm -hmm. But that is a manageable thing that I do almost every day. 
But if I wander outside and see one of the neighbors and we start having a socially distanced masked conversation, I'm only good for a couple minutes and then everything, all my joints just start hurting. Yeah. They're like, we didn't agree to this. (laughs) Right? To pre-approve. All standing. Right. And I'm frantically looking around to see if there's anything I can lean against or sit on. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, okay, okay, somebody's still talking to me. What can I do to be very casual and appear to be listening, but also completely change my posture? Right, right. It's good. Very natural. I know I always look extremely natural as I, like, lean slowly away from the conversation. Well, I think you were talking about that, like, a year ago, about being out at an event and slowly melting and that was the first time that that had come to my awareness and I realized that I would do that on the couch in the evenings to where I just sort of started melting (laughs) yeah (laughs) becoming less vertical and more horizontal (laughs) yeah almost as if I have no tolerance for being vertical I had never considered that that was something to pay attention to before. Yeah. I think our bodies like seek horizontality in ways that we don't even know about. As I've been fidgeting this entire conversation with my feet as high as possible, you know? Right, right. Well, hence the reason I'm conversing with you from my chaise lounge, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've done many of these interviews fully reclined. The hardest part is that I like to nod while people are talking, and it's really hard to nod when you're lying down. And so I end up getting uncomfortable in a different way, and that's my (laughs) trade-off. Right. Sounds solvable, but I haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. Okay, so have we caught up to the present? We're at like two hours, which is fine, but also long, and I suspect both of our brains are probably flagging. I don't sense any loose ends still hanging out there. I think we're pretty much caught up to the present day except that I've started getting so my type of migraine is considered rare they're now calling it it used to be when I was first diagnosed it was called basilar migraine and now they're calling it migraine with brainstem aura Hmm. so the name of it has changed several times during the past 20 years of me having it Mm -hmm. but I have started having trigeminal migraines Mm -hmm. which is different from trigeminal neuralgia and then in august i had what we suspect was a hemiplegic migraine where i had weakness and numbness on one side of my body Mm -hmm. and i know this just because i know because at the time you weren't sure that that's what it was right because and you'd gone to the hospital which i'm sure was not great in August of this year. Right. Yes. I wound up spending about 48 hours in the hospital during COVID and didn't get it. Fortunately, I just spoke to a neurologist as a follow-up this week. Mm -hmm. And at the last minute, they changed my appointment from face-to-face to a phone call. Okay. Yeah. But ironically, I was at the VA hospital that day anyway, because I always stack my appointments. Mm hmm because I have to drive so far. Right. So I had my Botox and other appointments in the hospital, then went out to the car and talked to the neurologist by phone from the parking lot. And they agreed that it was most likely a 
hemiplegic migraine, but said that it was very important that they actually physically see me. So now they've scheduled or rescheduled it, however you want to think of it, a face-to-face meeting uh, a month from now. So I have to drive all the way back to the VA hospital. That's very frustrating, contextually. (laughs) Yes. So that's where we are the present day. I formally withdrew from my doctoral program for medical reasons. The department head was pretty compassionate about it. He managed to say a few of those ableist things that you don't really like to hear, but he was trying and he meant well, which goes a long way. Yeah, and <laughs> another thing where you can usually tell. like, Right, yeah. right. And so here I am. I have become somewhat radicalized by chronic illness and the Twitter chronic illness community. Which is... Perhaps, like, more radical than many chronic illness communities, but not all, I'm sure. And I went through the whole Crip Camp workshop experience this summer. Yeah. And so now here I am. I mostly stay at home, but I live someplace that I love. And I am becoming a chronic illness slash disability advocate. And I don't work. And that's because I don't have to, and I can't. I want to. I don't need to monetarily. I kind of need to psychologically. Mm-hmm. But I can't. Yeah. It's a really difficult thing that is also kind of overlooked a lot by general conversations about disabled people and work. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who are legitimately very happy doing nothing a lot of the time for all kinds of reasons, but I know that there are a lot more people who would really like to feel like there's more purpose to what they're doing, and it's a combination of factors of how well symptom management is going, so whether symptoms directly interfering, or whether the full-time job of managing symptoms is interfering, or it's such a long list of possible things, but it's one of those things that's so frustrating, like you say. Like, psychologically, I want to work, and I want a community, and I want to be engaged in all of these things, and the gap... This is another one of those things that I just, like, haven't resolved in my head yet, but the gap of, like, how much of this is me and my body and the actual impairments that I have and how much of this is my relationship to the culture and like what would it look like to have spaces where people were able to work which I don't know the answer to but I think about a lot and your mentioning of it makes me think about it a lot and like you say I think a lot of us will get sick and get radicalized or more radicalized and then look for ways to make meaning from that experience, which maybe is advocacy or something related. And it's a weird thing of like, this can be so transformative that what else would I do? But also I've lost so many options that what else would I do? And it's weird how those can overlap, I guess. That makes sense. Right, right. You know, I agree with everything you just said. (laughs) And also, I am very energized to fight for the chronic illness and disability community. And at the same time, 
if somebody magically waved a wand and I could be well enough, I'd like to go back to the research that I was doing when I got sick. Yeah. Very, very understandable. Of course. It's a hard thing to reckon with, I guess, or to reconcile. Two different words that start the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's my overall feeling. Do you, it's also, I know, because so much of this is relatively recent, do you feel like there's, like, you found any kind of stasis so that you can start to think about what the next couple months or the next year might look like? Or do you still feel like you're very much, like, live putting out fires so that that is too, everything is too uncertain? I mean, everything's too uncertain in the world, certainly. But with a body, it can be so hard when you're like, no, I, I have to focus so hard on stopping this reaction or whatever it is. It's such a constant cycle. I think I'm losing coherence, but hopefully that question made some kind of sense to you. It absolutely made sense to me. Right. <laughs> you know, I did feel like I was acceptably stable before they pulled Zantac off the market. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's been a pretty critical Jenga piece that was ripped away. Mm -hmm. I am still working towards stability. And for me, I've gone way down the mast cell rabbit hole, but I haven't done probably enough research on connective tissue yet. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, now I've got this new and pretty scary type of migraine. Right. Because for people who aren't familiar, you have to make sure that it's not actually a TIA or a stroke, which I've had CT scans and MRIs and carotid ultrasounds, and those look normal. So, again, it's the exclusionary diagnosis of, well, probably a hemiplegic migraine that's making one whole side of the body weak. So it is still very much a 24-7 process. You know, I, I do feel encouraged about where we are with my mast cell treatment but i need to do better at managing the connective tissue issues and i'm not going to be comfortable until i've done more research about the hemiplegic migraines yeah makes sense it's a work in progress right right and there's a limited amount of energy that you can spend researching so many different conditions yeah and integrating it, because it's one thing to learn about something academically, and it's another thing to then take that information that you read and then really think about it happening inside your own body. like Right. Yeah, and fortunately, to my awareness right now, I don't have conditions that are fighting each other, you know, that their treatments mm -hmm. are contradicted for, you know. Yeah. And so I'm not having to do that mental math about how to treat something that's going to make something else worse. Yeah. Yeah, that's a real thing. Okay. <laughs> is there anything that we haven't made it to, by chance, that we haven't covered, that you know is on your mind, that you haven't forgotten over the two hours we've been talking? Well, I mean, I was prepared for the conversation to just go where it went. So I don't think I came into it with an agenda really mm -hmm. that's typical people usually <laughs> don't worry it's not a quiz 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I would say that if somebody who hears this is a veteran and they haven't applied for VA disability, I would strongly encourage them to do that. Yeah. Because then they would have access to some care or some supplemental care. And I've also blogged about it and Spousal Unit has blogged about it. You can see information on, there's a lot of good information about applying for disability on the Military Guide blog as well. But just an encouragement, I know less than 1% of the population has served in the military, but if people find this podcast and it applies to them or a family member, I just want to, you know, emphasize that. Yeah, make sure people know. Awesome. Well... Thank you so much for taking this time to talk to me. I am so glad we got to connect. I'm so excited to be talking to you again, but I'm so excited that we got to connect. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you spending your energy on me. And this was my very first podcast interview. So Woo, here you are <laughs> <laughs> on the airwaves. I don't think that's how yes. podcasts work. And you are one of my very favorite tweeps, and I'm very excited to be interacting with you on this. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to, like, have the capacity to be like, sick people, talk to me. I love it so much. And I'm so grateful that people share and that you're sharing your story and your energy with me. Yay. And I am glad that you are trending better right now. Thank you for listening to episode 74 of No End in Sight. You can find Crew Dog on Twitter and Facebook at One Sick Vet. They have a blog on their website, onesickvet.com. And they are also on Instagram at one underscore sick underscore vet. You can find me on Twitter at fibrofuckboy. And if you want to support me directly and are in a position to, I have a Patreon where I post my poetry and other artistic endeavors at patreon.com slash darkmagenta. You can find Brianne on Twitter and Instagram at BenSB, and you can find many more conversations about chronic illness on Twitter at RTs from the Void. And don't forget, you can sign up to support our show over at patreon.com slash noendinsight. Or if you want to support the show but don't have a few bucks to spare, we'd be just as grateful if you left a podcast review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.